Welcome back to Dictatorum, episode 1.6, Get Off These Dreams Turn Into Nightmares, the 1980s. Last time we took a look at how Gaddafi started transforming Libya in the 1970s. Improved healthcare and education was accompanied by increased political repression. Oil revenues fueled education, healthcare, infrastructure projects, and foreign endeavors aimed at harming Gaddafi's perceived opponents. The 1970s ended with Gaddafi's grip on power solid, while internally, Libya was a mess. This episode will take a look at Gaddafi's second decade in power, and the life-altering changes brought about by years of warmongering, flippant foreign policy, and the execution of political dissidents that eventually became a hallmark of the Gaddafi regime. In 1979, Gaddafi decided that Libya wasn't revolutionary enough, and announced the establishment of the Revolutionary Committee's movement. These revolutionary committees were to be like a second police force, whose mandate was to root out dissent and counter-revolution. They were spread out all over the country and had a presence in every major town, city, and institution. Within months, the freedom to speak your mind was gone. Those who questioned the official line of the government were often arrested and interrogated. The revolutionary committees also built a system of courts outside the normal justice system which let this vicious attack dog off the leash. The secret police were rumored to be everywhere, and any hint of dissidents might be enough to have someone arrested and sent to a kangaroo court. Sometimes, those court cases and interrogations were broadcast on state TV, which had also been taken over by the revolutionary committees. It quickly became the state's main propaganda arm. In an era where state-sponsored programming was the only thing on, and only for six hours a day, these televised confessions turn into televised executions. Remember that April 7th anniversary hanging thing every year? The crazy thing about the situation with state TV is that after a presenter got too popular, Gaddafi had him fired. He couldn't stand the idea that anyone else in the country might be more popular than him. Eventually, he ordered that the people take over the job of broadcasting. Suddenly, you had ordinary Libyans shown up to broadcast television, to what must have been a hilarious effect. Personally owned satellite dishes were not yet a thing, so most people only had access to Libyan television or newspapers. Often, Libyans wouldn't have news from the outside world, and only limited news about what was happening in their own country. Gaddafi wouldn't have dissent in his country. He was determined to find dissenters and crush them. Nothing was going to get in the way of his vision. Executions reached out further than just inside Libya, though. Gaddafi loyalists began a spate of murders that struck the UK, Italy, Sudan, and a few other places. An Algerian working for the Gaddafi government hijacked a plane flying from Germany to France. It was claimed that members of a Libyan opposition movement were on board, and the hijacker demanded to land the plane in Tripoli so they could be dealt with. The revolutionary committees took up residence in Libyan embassies around the world, too which had been renamed People's Bureaus in the spirit of the revolution. They were tasked with both spreading the revolution abroad and also keeping tabs on Libyan immigrants that spoke out against the regime. On the 17th of April 1984, dozens of such Libyan immigrants started a protest outside the Libyan People's Bureau on St. James Square in London. Someone inside the People's Bureau pulled out a machine gun and started firing. Eleven protesters were wounded, but the only fatality was a 25-year-old London police constable named Yvonne Fletcher. 
London's finest immediately cordoned off the area, but couldn't arrest those inside the People's Bureau because of their diplomatic status. At home, the Libyan press was claiming that the British government had tried to storm the People's Bureau, and then laid siege to a harmless group of diplomats as a reminder of Britain's brutal colonial past. The British did end up surrounding and blockading the People's Bureau for 11 days. The British and Libyans eventually agreed on a way to end the affair and negotiated so that those inside would be flown back to Libya after being questioned. British diplomats in Tripoli were also to be returned home. The British police and the public were furious. The murderer has never been caught, and the British broke off relations with the Libyans in response to P.C. Fletcher's murder. The incident remains an open wound to this day, and is said to have played a role in Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's decision to allow American planes to bomb Libya just two years later. Elsewhere, Gaddafi was making moves on the African continent. Libyan money and influence was more welcome in Africa than pretty much anywhere else. For example, over the course of the 1970s, Libya was able to influence almost 30 African countries to break diplomatic relations with Israel. And just like everywhere else, Gaddafi used his oil revenue to fuel revolutions across the continent. The Libyan military also benefited from this economic largesse. Gaddafi bought as much military hardware as he could get his hands on, and most of it from the Soviets. By 1979, the Air Force had more planes than pilots, and the Libyan army had a huge number of tanks. By 1984, yearly defense spending was $1.5 billion. Schools became paramilitary institutions, and rectors were replaced with military officers and their harsh discipline. Sadly for the brother leader, a lot of this military hardware would be destroyed during the Libyan Chadian conflict. What's the Libyan Chadian conflict? Well, I'm glad you asked, because it turned out to be one of the biggest quagmires of Gaddafi's rule. In 1973, Libya marched into the Azu Strip which, if you look at a map, is a strip of land about 100 kilometers long on Libya's southern border with Chad. This bit of inhospitable land is supposedly rich in uranium deposits, which Gaddafi invariably wanted to use in his efforts to build weapons of mass destruction, or at least to sell at a hefty profit. At this time, Chad was in the midst of a bitter civil war pitting the largely Muslim north with the Christian south. What Gaddafi assumed would be a fait accompli actually turned into a protracted war. From 1978 to 1987, the Chadians, despite being busy fighting each other, repeatedly defeated Libyan forces, with help from the French, who were supplying the southern rebels. Libya kept pouring blood and treasure into Chad, often sending teenagers shanghai from the streets of Libya's major cities. In 1987, the officer in charge of the Libyan operations in Chad, Khalifa Haftar, was captured along with between six and 700 Libyan soldiers. Remember this guy's name, because he's going to come back to Libya and play a major role later. Khalifa Haftar. Ultimately, the Chadians forced the Libyans out, and in 1994, an international court of justice decided in Chad's favor. Libyan dreams of scooping up more territory ended in disaster. In April 1986, a bomb went off at a nightclub in Berlin that was popular with American servicemen. Two American soldiers and a Turkish woman were killed, and more than 200 were injured. American intelligence intercepted messages about the bombing from Tripoli to the Libyan People's Bureau in East Berlin, 
and the Americans immediately blamed Libya. President Reagan asked British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher to let U.S. planes take off from bases in Britain for a strike. Ten days later, a group of American bombers took off from the U.K. and bombed sites in Tripoli, including military airfields and a portion of the Naval Academy, while carrier-based planes took off from the Mediterranean Sea and bombed military radar installations. Most importantly, the raid targeted Gaddafi's residence at the Bab al-Azizia compound in southern Tripoli. Approximately 40 Libyans were killed, to include Gaddafi's adopted daughter, Hannah. It's important to note, though, that Hannah's death might have been fabricated to drum up support. There's no confirmation that Hannah even existed. Even still, the raid shocked Gaddafi, who never believed America would use military force in such a brazen manner. U.S. President Ronald Reagan gave a speech about Gaddafi around this time, in which he referred to him as the Mad Dog of the Middle East. It was a moniker that would stick with the colonel for the rest of his life. In the wake of the raid, no one came to Libya's aid. No one even really spoke out against it. It just highlights how isolated Libya had made itself after a decade and a half of wild escapades. But Libya wasn't done with its foreign adventurism. It continued to support foreign terror and revolutionary groups, and continued to attack opponents of the regime abroad. On the 21st of December 1988, Pan Am Flight 103 took off from London en route to New York City at 6.25 in the evening. 37 minutes into the flight, the plane exploded over Lockerbie, Scotland. All 259 people on board and 11 people on the ground were killed. A three-year joint investigation between British police and the American FBI concluded that two Libyan agents at the airport in Malta, Abdel Basset al-Magrahi and Lamin Khalifa Fima, forwarded baggage from Malta that eventually ended up in PA-103's cargo hold. The fallout from this incident was to loom over Libya for the next 14 years. We'll visit more on what happened in the wake of Magrahi and Firma's indictment next week, but it spelled nothing but bad news for the Gaddafi personally and Libya in general. Gaddafi didn't just make a mess of foreign affairs. Internally, things were just as big of a mess. In 1980, the regime decided to devalue the Libyan dinar and force Libyans to adopt the new dinar. But, exchanges were limited to only a thousand old dinars. Suddenly, the average Libyan family's life savings were wiped out. Taking his economic reforms one step further, in 1984, Gaddafi ordered all private commerce to cease. All buying and selling had to go through the state. Libyans would now get ration books to buy their goods from state-run stores. Despite being one of the richest countries in the region, these stores are full of nothing but empty shelves most of the time, just like the stores in the Soviet Union and in China. The Libyan people would stand in line for hours to get the bare necessities in life, and often left empty-handed. Those who could traveled abroad to get things like children's clothing, shoes, and electronics. By the end of the 80s, almost all companies were absorbed by the state. Everyone was essentially a state employee now, but for a government that was chronically late in making payroll. The ordinary budget increased 300% between 1977 and 1983 due to the cost of paying these new government employees. Furthermore, to keep costs down, salaries were frozen at 1981 levels, despite the fact that inflation was more than 20% every year. Plus, 
Libya still had to import management for most industries because despite having a huge workforce, most of them were unqualified to sit their positions. People got paid just to show up, and often several people were paid to do the same job. Productivity plummeted, and getting simple things done like exchanging currency or getting documents signed became quite the headache. At the same time, Gaddafi ordered vast irrigation products and mass mechanization. A project to grow wheat in Kufra in southeastern Libya was successful, but at costs that were substantially higher than the wheat itself was worth. The increase in mechanization and irrigation upended the local water table, and Libya was faced with a huge water shortage problem. This is where the Great Man-Made River Project came into play. Originally conceived in the late 60s after the discovery of a vast Ice Age aquifer under southern Fezzan, the first construction on what would become the world's longest piping system started in 1984. Rolled out in phases, the first phase of the GMMR produced water by 1989, and the project completed a leg to Tripoli in 1996. By the time the Gaddafi regime fell in 2011, the GMMR produced 70% of the water in the country. The total cost of the Great Man-Made River reached upwards of $25 billion, and construction was ongoing up until the start of the revolution that would topple the regime. Gaddafi called it the eighth wonder of the world, and it improved the lives of ordinary citizens greatly by providing irrigation and potable drinking water to one of the world's driest countries. The aquifer, however, is not being replenished, and who knows how long the water in it is going to last. Estimates range from 50 years to 1,000. All this infrastructure building and foreign warmongering was complicated by the colonel's insistence on constantly changing the makeup of his cabinet, his ministries, and the economy as a whole. Officials came and went with dizzying rapidity, and they were not always qualified to do the jobs they held. If you got one of these jobs, it wasn't because you were qualified, it was because of your connections. And before you could really cement any forward progress, you'd lose your job. The constant change and lack of expertise made any kind of domestic economic progress tough to achieve. As one might expect, the whole economy was upended by these reforms in economic frivolity. Nominal planning done by the state didn't conform to reality, and level heads who could bring about positive change were near to be found. It might not have mattered if adept managers pushed for change. Gaddafi himself was famously averse to criticism, and could only pass the blame around. Trying to lay blame on the brother leader was likely to get you thrown in jail. But this economic chaos did provide the brother leader with some advantages. He could personally provide a given subordinate with special privileges and perks. The revolutionary committees were given their own desert farms for relaxation, while higher-ranking officials and the security services were given high-end cars, which they invariably sold for profit on the black market. If the big man is giving you good stuff, then you're likely to stay loyal to him. The corruption and patrony of the king's regime had come back full circle. By the late 80s, even the colonel could see that things had gotten out of hand. He abolished the hated revolutionary courts, and publicly admonished the revolutionary committees for having gotten out of hand. Gaddafi released prisoners, and even tore up lists of those banned from traveling abroad, declaring that Libyans would no longer require exit visas to travel. On the economic front, the brother leader allowed small private cooperatives to spring up, as long as the profits were shared evenly. Also, 
a law was passed revoking the state's monopoly on import and export, meaning Libyans could once again import goods from abroad. Coffee shops, hotels, and private doctor's offices could now be opened. It wasn't full economic freedom, but it was a start. As the 1980s came to a close, Libya had been through a roller coaster ride of reform and hardship. Foreign adventurism and wild reforms at home had made it Libya's most difficult decade yet. Next time, we'll see how the 1990s would also be a difficult period for the brother leader and his people. Sanctions, further reform, and Islamic extremism would make Libya's isolation even harder to live with. Mm -hmm.